I'm Elsie Granderson, and this is Life Out Loud. One of the least talked about aspects of growing up in the closet is that you grow up as someone else. So, when you come out of the closet, you are trying to tell the world who you are while also trying to figure out exactly who you really are at the same time. It's nearly impossible to know if I am the way that I am because of the survival technique I had to employ or if I would be this way in a vacuum, regardless of the environment. Like a lot in life, it's complicated. And there will always be this nagging feeling inside that no matter where you land on the question, the answer will never be satisfying. And that's just coming out. Imagine trying to juggle that with matters of gender, religion, race, or in the case of this season's Drag Race breakout star, Cornbread, your size. A lot of people say it's time for a big queen to win. I don't want to win because I'm big. I want to win because I went in there and I knocked out all the competition. I'm the full package. On this episode of Life Out Loud, we chat with Cornbread the Snack Jeté and Arizona State Representative Daniel Hernandez about being plus size in a world with a very specific idea of what beauty is. This was one of the hardest episodes for us to put together, not because we didn't think body image was a topic, but because the topic is so broad. Short and or thin people wrestle with comfort in their own skin just as really tall or larger people do. It's just expressed differently. The incredible thing about these two conversations is that regardless of how someone may struggle with self-acceptance, the work required to love your whole self is universal. Both Cornbread and Daniel talk openly about not only being queer, but being larger queer people of color in a community where being white with a six-pack is preferred currency. And that's not to suggest that white guys with six-packs don't have body image issues as well. We all do. And that's why this episode has something for everyone. Cornbread rolled her ankle earlier this season and couldn't finish competing, but there is no doubt that she was the season 14 Drag Race breakout star. Leaving my friendships behind, that's the hard part. But baby, this ain't the end, honey. You come back stronger and better than ever, always. Funny, fierce, and fearless, Cornbread shares with me what life in small town South Carolina was like for her growing up and how seeing the community in Los Angeles helped her gain the confidence in not only being queer, but in being her full self, love handles and all. Representative Daniel Hernandez came to national prominence in 2011 after helping to save the life of Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. Daniel, who also happens to be a huge drag race fan, offers tips on how to navigate a queer world that not only can be racist, but fat phobic as well. His intersectional perspective is very eye-opening. But first, the one and only Cornbread Jeté. I'm so, so happy to be able to speak with you, that you join us here on Life Out Loud. Obviously, you know that we all love you on RuPaul Drag Race this season. You're absolutely incredible. You're absolutely hilarious. And I just want to just jump right into it because there are a lot of areas in this conversation of LGBTQ plus equality that people can dip their toe into. Right. And... I feel as if you are dipping your whole foot into this conversation because you're hitting on so many aspects of LGBTQ plus life that we don't see on television very often. Did you enter into this season um, with that mission in mind of showing a different part of our community that doesn't get as much publicity? 
Yes and no. There was there were specific ways I was going to to approach it. Um, we all watch TV. And we know how these things work for reality television. And um, if you you open to open up too much in front of people, sometimes it shows a sign of weakness. But that's also something I learned. And in like my youth time, which is not the way things work. I feel like showing emotions and things is like a sign of strength because you're like opening up and you're expressing yourself to people. Going in here, I planned on competing and and just like going in as hard as I could possibly go. I think what made a switch for me, um, and I made a post about it like the day of like announcements and everything. Um, one of my best friends passed away literally an hour before the van came to pick us up to go to the show. So obviously during the quarantine time, um, because of like the pandemic and everything, um, you have the time to like isolate and just like be to yourself, you know, to make sure you're good and all that. Um, and I think I had like self-reflection in that time. It was more on the side of like living life on this, it's full isn't like being your authentic self. And I think my friend taught me that in that moment in time dealing with that quarantine. So when I walked into that room, I'm a very tough human being. I like to say so myself. And I think dealing with all of that kind of opened up a more vulnerable side of me, which I'm very happy it did because I got to express myself a lot more. And I know in our community, it's kind of complicated to express yourself and emotion, especially growing up in the queer community or queer in a different community, like in the South. And at this point, I was just like, it is what it is. And at this point in time, no one can stop me from saying what I wanted to say, because now it was like cameras are on me. And it's not like a face to face conversation with somebody that can be like, well, I don't want to hear it and blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, you're going to hear it now. You have no choice because there's no way for you to interrupt it. Share a little bit about your experience growing up in the South. Mm -hmm. Like, how did cornbread come to be? And then my second question is, are we making our cornbread with Jiffy and Martha White or are we using real cornmeal and, you know, grinding away, putting it together? Oh, real cornmeal. I'm from South Carolina. Um, <laughs> my grandma saw me grabbing that blue, yellow, and red box and she kicked my tail. But cornbread came about way after South Carolina. I've been in doing drag for three years now. Um, and um, it's so funny. So South Carolina don't ha doesn't have many like gay bars or queer bars or anything, right? So um, my grandma stayed across the street from Benedict Stadium, which is like one of the, the college stadiums in South Carolina. And um, there was this nightclub called The Candy Shop right up the street from her house. And we would always be in the front yard, grilling out, cooking out and all that cute stuff. And um, there will always be these massive women walking back and forth. And I never knew they were drag queens until later that someone explained it. So I'm just this little kid just looking like, wow, and not realizing that was gonna be my future. Uh, <laughs> and mm. then I came to LA and my drag mom, um, one of my best friends was like, you should try it. And I was like, I'm gonna do this one time and that's it. And child, they put them heels on my feet and uh, it was a wrap since then. I was like, yeah, this might be the ticket. So here we are. And what was the decision like to go to LA for you? Oh, it was super easy. I was in high school and one of my college teachers graduated from my high school and she came back to school just to do like a whole spiel on the school or whatever. And I was like, uh, there was a campus in LA and there was a campus in New York. And I'm like, okay, which one of these is the furthest way from South Carolina? And LA was the <laughs> furthest one from South Carolina. So I ended up choosing this. Um, I didn't graduate from school. I, um, I didn't plan on um, graduating. My whole goal was to get out here give myself two years to learn LA. And if I learned LA in two years and I enjoyed what I learned in the two years, then I was just going to just hit the ground running. And that's what I did from, from there. So one of my old teachers definitely like influenced me to come out to LA. Why did you want to get as far away as possible from South Carolina? And the reason why I'm asking is because on our first episode of the season, 
Um, we spent time talking to Chastin Buttigieg and Ariana DeBose, who are also from the rural parts of the country, and they speak lovingly about it, and they can't wait to go back to it. But I'm not hearing that same sense from you. I'll put it in this sense. There are people who are siblings, right, raised in the same household. And each one of those, there's there's three brothers, right? Raised up in the same household by the same parents, had the same regimen. Not every last one of those kids are going to be exactly the same. Not every one of those kids is going to have the same exact experience. Not every one of those kids is going to have the same mindset. They probably had a different lifestyle than I had. They probably had a different um, upbringing than I had. Was my family full of love? Absolutely. But my family also did not understand the queer aspect of life and talk to them, it was something that was completely wrong. So my experience with South Carolina, love it and I'll go visit, but at the same time, it was not a place for me to flourish and like live openly. My whole mindset was get as far away as from the place that I'm familiar with so I can like learn and explore myself. Because if I stay in South Carolina, then I'm gonna be living somebody else's truth and not mine. So were you closeted in South Carolina or were you constantly told to be quiet and not share your true self, but you were out in South Carolina? Oh, baby, it wasn't such thing as a closet for me, honey. Them people knew. As soon as I came out, my wrist was limp, honey. I came out snapping. I'm pretty sure I had acrylics when I came out. Um, <laughs> that must have hurt. I had nothing to do with it. I don't remember it. Uh, <laughs> but um, during the time in South Carolina, like when I was born, my entire family, like the doctor told me that I was a girl from the jump. Um, so I told him it was foreshadowing, honey. But it was more so of it was frowned upon. Because being homosexual in the South is not a cute situation. Being queer in the South is not a a cute situation. And in most places, and definitely talking about transitioning was not the ticket either. It was not happening there either. So I think it wasn't necessarily, it was one of those things where let's not talk about it, which to me, let's not talk about it is more painful than having a conversation and saying you dislike it. It just wasn't, you know, wasn't my, my moment in South Carolina. I had to go somewhere else to get my moment to be able to like live like my truth, authentic self. I got in trouble for wearing a pink shirt one time. Pink is the color. <laughs> and it's almost like, oh, it's a pink shirt. Well, you guys don't wear pink. And I'm just like, baby, it came out the men's section. So clearly they do. But these are conversations that nobody was ready to have. So it was to just go, go wherever I can to, to live my life. I hear you talking about being queer in the South. Obviously, sounds as if you grew up in a Black community. How did being a larger Black person, a Black queer person in the South impact your life growing up? As far as being large, the South is a pretty large place in general. Um, You throw a stone, honey, you're going to hit a big girl (laughs) uh, when you're in the South. That's just how it works. The plate's always full in the South. But I think you obviously walk around school and you see a lot of like athletic people and Obviously, body insecurities happen when you're in high school. You feel different. You look different. You have so much going on in your head. Like, what am I? Who am I? Why am I? And why don't I look like the rest of these people? My friends always talk about it to this day. I have to control these girls that are sitting on top of me. I had boobs in high school because I was fat. And I was like, how do I hide these things? My whole mindset was, you know, cut them off or you know, get surgery or something. Correct what was there. So it's like that insecurity just sitting in the back of your head of like, I don't look like the rest of these people not knowing one day this was going to be my moment. Um, and <laughs> they was going to make me some money by doing drag. But it's like small stuff like that. It's like, I don't like how my body looks at this moment in time, but I'm not going to express it. That's where the confidence comes from or or building this wall of like uh, of strength and not letting you see me weak at any point in time. And definitely growing up black um, in the South, racism is still alive uh, in a thing. Prejudice 
is still alive and a thing that's still in the South. And you have to deal with those things on top of, all right, let's not put too much switch in your walk. All right, let's not talk too mom, much in a, a, a sassier tone and, and drawing your words out. And all right, let's not wear too many bright colors. And let's, it's those moments where you build so much of yourself hiding that that's when you like suppress all your like, emotions and stuff. So being queer, black and plus size, I got three different things going against me in quote unquote society's mindset. Was Los Angeles a welcoming place for a large black queen such as yourself? I think so. I went to theater school in Los Angeles. And uh, when I walked into theater school, uh, they made me feel very um, cisgender straight male compared to how queenie the kids were in that school. I was like, <laughs> no, wait a minute. I was like, I didn't know y'all was doing it like this, honey. Uh, like, give us an example. Like, what shocked you when you walked in through the door? You're like going, oh, snap. The skinniest loveliest and I call glittery fairy queens just knew there was Barbara Streisand and they walk and they talk just like me in a very deep voice and when they started singing it's the highest soprano belt and tone you've ever heard in your life and I was like baby if I was doing this in church honey it'd be a different story so I'm just like <laughs> looking around the room I'm like yeah girl they switching hard the kids got on lip gloss and blush I'm like this ain't like how it is back at home it took me a moment to get used to it even coming there, my mindset was like, okay, y'all doing too much, not realizing these people are living their best lives and I have yet to to adapt to that. Theater school literally taught me, girl, like, just like, let it go. I want to tell you, I have some of the best friends from theater school who taught me more than they know, just based on visuals of them expressing themselves. And that's when I kind of figured out, okay, LA might be it. This might be the place for me. I was on Hollow Boulevard. I saw this man rolling up the street and, um, and rollerblades. And he had him some booty shorts on, his little rollerblades, honey, and his little griddle crop top. And I was like, and y'all just chilling? Ain't nobody paying attention to him? Like, y'all gonna let him ride up the street? South Carolina would have been a different story. I think that clicked for me. I was like, oh, okay, we good. Like, I could just live my life um, while I'm out here. So that was the switch for me. So LA definitely opened up for me 100%. Do you feel comfortable in your own skin now? Yeah, yeah, you can't tell me nothing. There you go. I'm like, I'm the most confident person in my um. My body, um, I love everything about myself. I do have a gym membership, but that's just to keep up stamina for drag. And I only go like once every other month. So um, they just getting free money for me, honey. <laughs> but yeah, I, you can, I love everything about myself now. And I think being here taught me that 100%. You know, watching you on this show, I'm sure everyone talks to you about that look you care. That grown folk auntie look. Was that natural or did you perfect it? Because every time you drop it, I'm like going, is that my Aunt Sonora? Why she got that face like my Aunt Sonora? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> once again, back in South Carolina, I obviously had a mouth on me. One of the sassiest mouths on the planet. But I would get in trouble for that mouth. So, I'm like, all right, if I can't talk and I'm full of life and I'm full of energy, how am I going to express this? And I never knew I was making faces. And uh, Someone was like, you make very distinctive faces. Or they'll always go, it's my dad name now, but they will always go, um, I'll be sitting there and I'll see something weird and I'll just be looking like this. And I don't know that I'm making a face and somebody will hit me and be like, Tevin, Tevin, you're making a face. That's how I ended up in church. I'll just be making faces like, what the hell is going on? Um, and so now I'm just developed. I can't help it. This is a whole language in itself. You're going to know exactly how I'm feeling. Tell everybody's face. 
Baby, you gave me a whole soliloquy, like a Hamlet soliloquy with just your face in one episode. And I was just like, is this something that now that you are aware of that you've perfected? Or is it still something that is involuntary? Because you are a comedian as well. It's involuntary, just like my comedy. My comedy is involuntary too. The thing, <laughs> everything I do and say pops up in my head. And it is the 100% truth and exactly how I'm feeling the way I can express it. So when I make faces at people, it's me giving people opportunity to finish their thought and their sentence out before I come up with something in my head. So you can be talking now and you're explaining something to me and you'll get halfway through it and I'm gonna make a face like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but I'm not gonna say it out loud. I'm gonna let you finish. And then my face will get to, oh, okay, cool. So it's me having conversations with you, but just like not cutting you off and not like speaking over you because um, I know I can talk. So it's it's honestly, it's just a way of me like going through dialogue in my head. And if I'm thinking it, you're going to see it and I can't help it. <laughs> Besides the, the grand prize, why was being a part of this show so important to you? I think the biggest thing I grew up on 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 Drag Race. Drag Race was a thing that I used to sneak and watch. I used to watch it at uh, my uncle's house uh, while everybody was sleeping, and then I'll go delete it from the queue after I was done. I was watching Drag Race, and I was not realizing what I was watching when I was getting myself into it, but I could just relate to the people. And I've always said it from the jump. Even like theater teachers have got, I've gotten in trouble for it. They was like, so why do you do this? And everybody was like, oh, I do this for the passion. I do this for the art. And I've always said, baby, I want to be famous. And it was always my thing. It was like, oh, you don't, you don't want like a wealthy career and all this stuff. I said, I want to be straight up famous. Like I want to do reality television. I've, I've spoken into existence from the jump. I didn't know drag was going to be the outlet for it. And, and getting introduced to drag and being on Drag Race to where, I can like just live myself, my, my authentic self in front of so many people and you're either gonna love me or you're gonna hate me. But either way, just both you're giving me attention um, regardless of how you feel about it. But I think I gained more of a family from Drag Race and a learning experience from Drag It's It's, it's so much more than just a check and a crown and a scepter. I went on this show for me and all of my friends that have like supported me and like have helped me from jump, you know, so. Is fame what you thought it would be or what you hoped it would be? Yes and no. I don't know what sleep is anymore. Definitely don't know what personal space is. Um, if my head touches a bed or a pillow, I'm grateful for it because I'm always on a plane sleeping and I'm traveling and like, I'm not making money and I'm doing all this stuff, but it's two sides to it. It's, um, I think the fame from all of this makes me even more humble than I was going into this because it's it you endorse so much love from people that is validating and it settles in your fears like you know I've been fighting for this for so long and as much as people say oh I don't want validation or I don't need validation that little ounce of validation kind of solidifies you basically saying you did what you needed to do and you chose the right path. So um, fame is the blessing and the curse, honestly, but more side of the blessing. When do you feel your sexiest? Uh, Probably when I'm asleep. <laughs> Ain't nothing sexier than a loud snore to paint, uh, pull the paint off the walls. No, um, <laughs> honestly, I say, people say, what's your drag aesthetic? I was like, it's always very Southern church with a splash of hoe. And I think 
there's a lot of people who tell plus size people to hide their bodies and not to to, to flaunt things and everything like baby you go get into the shape and i think i love covering up i love a good gown uh and i love a good t-shirt and some sweats honey but when you give me a good old uh low cut gown or something snatched up on this body to where it's just like get to flaunt it around that's me right there you looking at me on this stage living my full body mama it's so many plus size people coming to me it's like i don't understand how you like you like live so freely like we want to be like that i said it ain't no method into building into it you just got to get out there and just be like look this is what you're gonna get and you're either gonna love it or you're gonna hate it and once again if you hate it you're still giving me attention so i appreciate you for it was this a part of cornbread pre-LA or as you began to become part of LA? This definitely wasn't before LA. Um, you can find pictures of me on the internet in high school. Um, it's uh, 90 degrees outside. I had on a hoodie, uh, baggy pants, you know, and always had a beanie on my head. That was me. Every time you seen uh, me walking around school, that was my everyday outfit. Sweating hot. I got used to it because I was hiding my body because I didn't know the value of it. If that makes sense. I didn't know the value I held. And by value, I mean, I didn't know me expressing myself and living freely would openly make a lot more people want to be the same way, if that makes sense. So in high school, I was just hiding everything away. When I came to L.A., you see big girls walking around here in L.A., honey, and they got their tank tops on and their booty shorts and they live in their best fantasy. And I'm just like, that's confidence. And that's you not caring about what people think. And I would always say, I do what I want to. I don't care what nobody say, blah, 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 blah. But in the inside, I'm still hiding, being free and being comfortable in my own skin. So I sat back and was like, am I really living the stuff that I say out to people? And the answer was no. So after that point, it was like skimpy clothes everywhere. And then I had to learn how to shape it and dress it correctly. <laughs> you know, I so understand where you're coming from. I have a son and for years and years and years, cornbread, he would never wear a pair of shorts and he would wear hoodies and he would cover up mm -hmm. for the opposite reason because he thought he was too skinny. Oh, wow. And then he grew into his own and became more confident. See, girl, you can't keep clothes on him. It was actually it was a beautiful thing to see. You said, me and my, one of my roommates, we joke, uh, one of my old roommates, uh, he's still one of my best friends. We joke about it all the time. And I'm like, oh, his name's Danny. God, I can't drive for nothing. I said, Danny, we're going to the bank. And he goes, okay. And then I take it. I go put on my crop top and have my belly hanging over my pants. And he goes, Cornbread, where are you going? I said, we're going to the bank, honey. I'm at my midriff hang out. And he's just like, okay. And it will let me walk out the door like this. But I would never just go. I was just like joking around. But baby, I'm telling you, this fat just be out. Uh, my roommate now, honey, is you getting a good old sports bra and some highway shorts. And I walk around, girl, the rose is just hanging outside the pants. The neighbor seen it. The mailman done seen it. They all, <laughs> they all know what the love handles look like because I ain't hiding it for what? It's there. You know it's there. <laughs> Last question for you. Yes. Are you a role model? If you would have asked me this before Drag Race happened, the answer would have been no. You're asking me this now after RuPaul's Drag Race? I would say yes. And it's not saying I'm going to put myself in a place of being a role model. You automatically sign up for being a role model once you step into that room. Before you even open your mouth, just by your image alone, you are a role model to somebody. You are speaking up for somebody or you're being a voice for somebody. And that's one of those things when you asked earlier, you were asking, is fame what it, it cracked up to be or, or whatever. 
that's a, a line under it as well. That's one of, you know, one of the dots that goes with it as well. You're a role model for people that you didn't even expect to be a role model for. And it's insane. And it makes you carry yourself in a different light. It makes you say, you know what? I'm not arguing with those people on the internet. I'm not going to say this bad thing. It makes you edit yourself in the best way possible. So I am 100% a role model, whether I volunteer my services for it or not. It's probably the greatest thing that could have uh, could have ever happened to me is being a role model to somebody else. Well, thank you so much, Cornbread. You're a role model to me. Oh, I appreciate that. You really are. I just love your energy, your confidence. I was like, why am I not wearing booty shorts? Get you some. I'm gonna give me some. I got a nice booty. I can give her some booty shorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can make some too. Go find your old pair of pants, cut it, put it, in, put it in a dryer to get a little frill on the bottom of it. They call it fashion, honey. They'll charge you a hundred dollars at Nordstrom for them. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Cornbread, for your time. I so appreciate it. I appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. I appreciate you for talking to me and listening to me talk. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Arizona State Rep. Daniel Hernandez is a hero. You'll hear me say that a lot during our conversation because it's not said enough. Whether it's Mark Bingham, who was one of the passengers who fought hijackers on United Flight 93, forcing it to crash in an empty field in Pennsylvania instead of its intended target in D.C. during the September 11th attacks. Alan Turek, who broke the Nazi code that enabled the Allies to win World War II, or Bayard Rustin, who organized the March in Washington. Queer people are not often held in history for our heroic contributions, but that doesn't mean we're not here. And thankfully for Gabby Giffords, Daniel was there for her. Mom, don't worry about me. I'm fine. But something's happened to Gabby. It's bad. I have to go. This is an ABC News special report. We continue to follow the story of Congresswoman Giffords of the 8th District in Arizona. That's Tucson, Arizona. She has been shot outside a supermarket. We are Daniel Hernandez, who has become a national celebrity because of his heroic work as uh, Gabby Giffords' intern, credited with saving her life uh, about two weeks ago. Daniel, who was running for Congress, also led the fight to defeat a so-called Don't Say Gay bill in Arizona, similar to the one that passed in Florida. The fact that he is not a household name is disappointing. The fact he sometimes feels like an outsider in the queer community is why this conversation is so necessary. Representative Daniel Hernandez, how are you fine, sir? First of all, call me Daniel. Uh, <laughs> I am doing well. It is a nice warm day in Tucson, so it's a lot better than being in the valley where I feel like all this week I was dying because it was so cold. And I'm like, I live in the desert. It's supposed to be nice and warm here. And yet it's like 30 degrees. You know, you won't get any sympathy for the vast majority of our listeners because you can walk around in flip flops and shorts if you want to. 
I know. I am very spoiled living in Southern Arizona, and it's beautiful. I have wine country in my district, so how can you go wrong? Wait, hold on. There's a there's a vineyard down in Tucson? I had no idea. There are 15 wineries in my district, Elsie. We'll have to bring you down. I will take you to all the best. There are so many fun places. See, this is the thing about Southern Arizona people don't appreciate and understand, that we have beautiful mountains, beautiful desert, but you can also come here and have really good wine and enjoy just being driven around and doing wine tastings from one place to the next. So it's a, it's a wonderful place. And I'm just so excited to be here. I don't know, girl. I don't know about y'all grapes. I don't know about y'all grapes down there. I don't know. I think (laughs) after you've had a couple of glasses of wine, Elsie, you won't care about the grapes. (laughs) <laughs> but it is good wine okay that sounds like an invitation i would definitely accept <laughs> i, I want to start here with our conversation because one i think people need to be reminded exactly who you are and what you did for this country so i want to start with oh my goodness january 2011 yeah. congresswoman gabrielle giffords is hosting an event for constituents where you are right now in tucson Grocery store parking lot, a man come forward and starts shooting. He injures 19, he murders six, he shoots Congresswoman Giffords in the head, and you are largely credited with helping to save her life. When you hear those details, particularly about being you know, seen as an American hero for helping to save a Congresswoman's life, What do you remember most about that horrific event 10 years later? Oh, my goodness. There are so many things that I remember. But I think the thing that people don't actually realize is this was the fifth day on the job on the internship for me. Um, I had started on January 3rd in her office. And while I'd known her for years and volunteered on her campaigns, I was literally five days into my congressional internship when the shooting happened. I was only 20 years old. Um, and I think that's another thing that people kind of forget because I've always been somebody that looks older. And I think the fact that my hair has been thinning since I was like, 20 uh, doesn't help because when I tell people that I was 20 years old on the fifth day, they don't remember that. They don't believe me. But I think the other thing that I think is something that will always stick in my mind is two things. The first was a young girl named Christina Taylor Green. She was nine years old. She had just been elected to the student council at her elementary school, and she came with her neighbor, Susie Heilman, to meet Gabby, and she was born on September 11th, and was someone who wanted to grow up to be either a congresswoman or an astronaut, and wanted to ask Gabby a question. And unfortunately, she was someone that never got to have that conversation with Gabby. She never got to ask her question. Um, And I just remember so vividly meeting this young woman and talking to her and treating her with the same amount of respect that I treated all the other people, because as a young person who had been used to being the youngest person in the room for a lot of these political events, I knew that I had to set an example, which is you treat everybody, whether they're eight years old or 80, the same way. So I just very vividly remember having a conversation with her, getting down on my knees so that I could make eye contact with her and her just shooting straight up and standing up so straight that she seemed like she had grown three inches <laughs> immediately because <laughs> um, somebody was treating her like one of the grown-ups um, because Gabby had instilled in me 
when I was an intern on her congressional campaign that you treat everybody the same. Everybody, whether they are, you know, a big donor or whether they're a constituent needing help who is eight years old, like you treat everybody the same. So that's one of the big things that really sticks out to me. And the other, and it's one that I haven't really talked too much about, was when Gabby was shot and we were waiting for nine minutes while the EMTs arrived, her playing with her congressional medal, her pin, um, all members of Congress um, are given a pin and she had a pin on her uh, lapel of her jacket. And I was holding her up um, and trying to make sure that she wasn't moving around. And because I kind of kept trying to get her to not move, what she ended up doing with her hand that she was still able to move was just kind of rolling that pin around in her hand. And that's, you know, two of the memories that are going to be, I think, seared in my brain for the rest of my life. You know, here she is uh, having been shot and I'm trying to tell her what's going on around her. Um, and she's, you know, playing with her pin um, as a member of Congress. How did you know what to do? So I was very fortunate that I trained as both a nursing assistant and as a phlebotomist in high school. Um, we have a wonderful career and technical education program here in Arizona. And I did a program called Health Occupation Students of America because I wanted to go into healthcare. Um, so I trained as a nursing assistant and as a phlebotomist. Obviously, you don't get trained for a gunshot wound to the head or for trauma when you're in that position. But I had some very basic first aid skills that I was able to put to use. And thankfully, you know, we had wonderful doctors at University Medical Center in Tucson and EMTs who were there. But I think something that people don't realize is it took nine minutes from when the shooting happened before the EMTs were allowed to actually start treating her. Because in a mass casualty situation like what we had in Tucson, there was a lot of chaos and a lot of confusion. And there was a lot of fear that there might be multiple gunmen and that there might be other people who were still at large um, trying to hurt people. So the EMTs, I could see them after three minutes, but for six agonizing minutes while we were waiting, they were just staring at us while we were waiting to get the okay from the sheriff's department for them to come in and start treating the victims. You know, one of the things that is so remarkable to me about your heroics at that time was understanding where we were as a nation politically when it came to LGBTQ plus equality. As I mentioned earlier, this is January 2011. This is before then Vice President Biden announced his support for same-sex marriages. That's when this occurred. The fact that you ran for the local school board, won, and then was immediately faced with some sort of anti-gay blowback after having saved this woman's life just completely boggles my mind. <laughs> it does not boggle my mind because I can tell you something, Elsie. I started getting death threats a week after the shooting because the reasonable, rational, normal response when someone has just been involved in a mass shooting and has seen their boss and one of their heroes get shot in the head is to threaten to shoot them. That is, unfortunately, the reality that I've lived with for the last 11 years since the shooting. So for me, it was not surprising when my fellow board members tried to recall me because I asked too many questions. I am somebody who 
if nothing else is blunt and honest. <laughs> so when I got elected to the school board at 21, there was this belief that I would be, you know, just another cog on the wheel, that I would do whatever people wanted um, who were older than I am. And I came in and I surprised them because I said, no, I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to ask questions. I was elected to do a job because I care about this community. This is the community that raised me. And I want kids to have a better experience than what I had had in my, in my schooling. My sister was attacked by a police officer at 14 and now has permanent spinal damage because of that incident. I had multiple instances where I had a principal who told me when I got really sick when I was 17 that it would be easier for me to just drop out and a lot less paperwork for him if I dropped out of high school than trying to get on an IEP on a plan to get me back on track. So this was the culture that I came into, one where the teachers were working overtime, miracle workers, quite honestly, trying to take care of these kids. Meanwhile, they had adults who were in charge on the school board and at the administrative level who set up a culture of low expectations, who said, you know, he grew up on the south side of Tucson. No one expects him to graduate. No one expects him to do anything with his life. He's going to end up in a dead end job and literally having administrators tell me, you know, it's easier if you just drop out. It's easier if we just kick your sister out of school. She can just go get her GED. Proud to say that that sister now serves with me in the Arizona State House, has two master's degrees and a bachelor's from the University of Arizona. And I, you know, not only was able to get elected to the school board and start changing that culture, but started holding people accountable for the first time in a long time, which when you make people uncomfortable, they lash out. So they thought going against me and saying, you know, put a real man on the school board. He doesn't support sports or your kids. These whistle dog whistle attacks would get people to turn against me. But the reality was my community stepped up and said, we aren't going to go after him because he's gay. Honestly, that doesn't matter. You don't have a gay or a straight school board member. You have school board members who are here to make sure that kids get a good education and that they're successful. And that's where I think I was really inspired to see my community stepping up when the people who are going after me thought this will be an easy thing. We'll just go after him because he's gay. And it backfired on them completely. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up, you know, some of the details to the recall efforts because I did stumble across a PDF of some of the flyers that were being circulated to try to get you ousted. And right. I chuckled a little bit only because it says Daniel Hernandez is LGBT. And I was like, he might be G. He could be a B. He might even be a T, but he can't be all four at the same time. Do you even know what you're talking I, about? <laughs> I, I've been an overachiever since I was very young, LZ. Um, but no, this is the thing that there were people who were upset, who were angry that I was calling out some of the things that they were doing. And it was like a soap. We could spend two hours talking about my first elected office because it was like a soap opera. There were recalls. There were people, you know, handing out these flyers. There were all these things. But every single day that I woke up and I was a school board member, I woke up and I said, what am I doing to make this community a better place? And no matter how nasty those people get, am I doing this for the right reasons? And I think a lot of people joke that, you know, 
Daniel Hernandez is too big for his britches. He's a stair climber. He's just looking for the next thing. And I'm like, if that were the case, I would have stopped at school board because that experience (laughs) was such a negative experience for so many reasons. But it was also the most rewarding thing I've ever done because after the folks tried to recall me and spread some very vicious, you know, flyers and hateful flyers about me. I turned around and with the community that was now mobilized and angry, we recalled them. So I went from being in a two, three minority that cared about kids on the school board to being in a four, one majority and becoming the president of the school board, the youngest president ever. And as far as we know, the only gay school board president for the district, that's the second largest one in Pima County, um, which is the second largest county in Arizona. So for me, it was one of those things where I was really passionate. I was driven by my desire to serve my community and to say, no matter what arrows they're throwing at me, what is the reason I'm here? And if the reason I'm here is to make sure that these kids have a better chance and better opportunities than I did, then no matter how hard and tough this is, I'm doing the right thing. You are a total rock star, an inspiration, and certainly someone that should be uplifted and celebrated in the LGBTQ plus community. And yet I instinctively know that isn't necessarily the case. Do you feel celebrated by our community? You know, that that's kind of a tough question because I feel like there are some people um, in the LGBTQ community who are really motivated about the idea of having an openly gay congressman or legislator or school board member. And then I see racism within our community all the time. I see transphobia. The funny thing is like, I am a gay man who is Latino and who is a state representative. And yet I constantly deal with and see people in our own community going after other parts of our community. You know, I keep reminding some of my friends who are gay men that we cannot, talk about the LGBTQ community if we forget the T or the Q. And far too often, there are groups being left behind. And I think it's so frustrating for me because I like to joke that I'm an old soul and that I like to study history. So when we're talking about something and there's a proposal or there's some legislation that's going forward, I've had people say, well, just leave trans people out of it or just leave, you know, this group out of it. And I'm like, no, Because if we're doing this, we're doing this for all of us. Because if we leave anybody behind, if we throw anyone under the bus to try and protect ourselves, we're doing a disservice. Because they may be going after the T now, but it's just a short time before they come after the L, the G, and the B. And they're going to come after us. So we either stand together or we all fall together. From 1991 to 2019, until I worked in a bipartisan way with my Republican colleagues to repeal the no promo homo law, you literally could not talk about the existence of our community and our public schools. And now there's a lot of room to grow, but we can at least acknowledge that we exist. And that is such a step in the right direction. And I think that's the thing that we're setting a foundation for the next generation, but we lost a generation of gay men during the eighties and nineties because of AIDS. And I talked to a lot of older folks um, who survived or who were lucky enough Um, to receive treatment or lesbians even. And they're like, kids don't always know these lessons. They don't know our history because we weren't taught our history. We were erased and many of us died. Um, So that's where I see my role as being an educator, (laughs) as being a historian and also being, you know, 
an agent of chaos at times, trying to get people to get angry and agitated, because I think sometimes we forget that all the rights that we've gained in the the recent past could be taken away by a Supreme Court decision or by one election where we get a president who comes in and goes after the trans community. You know, I definitely hear you when it comes to the racism that can be prevalent in different facets of our community. But I also think the fact that you are a larger person also has played into people ignoring not just what you've accomplished and what you've done, but also what you're trying to do. Do you think our issues in our community when it comes to body images has played a role in how people view you? Oh, 100%. And I think one of the big things is as LGBTQ people growing up in the 80s and 90s, we weren't taught about our community. And in a lot of places, we were taught to not love ourselves and to hate ourselves. So I think for me, one of the first things that I had to do is stop looking for outside validation. If I had to worry every day about how people felt about me, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning because the number of death threats, the number of homophobic, fatphobic, racist things that I get on a regular basis would be like psychologically crippling for most folks. <laughs> I've had to learn from a very young age that if I'm looking to others for validation, then I'm never going to be able to be fulfilled by what I'm doing. And I think that's uh, an important lesson. It's a hard lesson. And it's one that you have to kind of relearn on a regular basis, especially when you're going out there and literally asking people for their votes and for their support. But I had a really important moment during the shooting and the immediate aftermath that I think really helped kind of change my perspective. And that was getting an opportunity to sit with then secretary Hillary Clinton. She invited me um, to spend some time with her when she was secretary of state. And for me, this was a huge honor and a huge thing because she was the reason why I got involved in electoral politics. I wanted a woman president. So I worked on her first campaign in 2007. After that, I met Gabby. So she was really the reason why I first got involved. And after the shooting, she invited me to spend some time with her. And she said, you know, Daniel, now that you are in public life, I need you to know a couple of lessons. So the first lesson was never say nice to meet you ever again because there will always be someone you've met who will be offended that you've already met them and that you don't remember them. <laughs> and that was an important lesson. That's a, that's a good life hack right it's there. It's a good life hack. And she said, you know, come up with your own little funny thing. And that was the first lesson. But the second lesson, and it's one that I was so like floored by. And she said, no matter what you do, when you work hard and you try and make people's lives better, there will always be people trying to stop you. So you have to have the thick hide of a rhinoceros and take all of the criticisms for what they are and whatever you can work off of, take it for what it is and improve. But for most of the things, you have to learn to shrug it off. Take them critically, but not personally. But I think it's been an important thing for me that I am grounded in the work that I do because I have an amazing support system. I have wonderful and loving parents and two amazing sisters who are also elected officials in their own right. Um, but I surround myself with people who support me and who will check me. And they like to say bloop when my head gets too big, like they're popping a balloon. But <laughs> at their core, they care deeply about who I am. 
and they remind me that I need to stay grounded. Are you coupled? Oh, goodness, no. You would need free time to do that. <laughs> um, l- let me give you an idea of what a typical day looks like for me right now in the legislature. I wake up around 5.30 or 6. By 6.30, I'm either on the phone trying to talk to voters or trying to raise money. I then go to the Capitol, go to meetings all day. If I have committee, I'm there all day. I get home, get back on the phone and keep working and campaigning. When I'm back home in Tucson, I am going knocking on doors and talking to voters. So the only times that I have for myself are usually between the hours of like 10 o'clock and two in the morning before I pass out and start it all over again. I usually get about four hours of sleep. So really the only fun things that I do now is occasionally go out with friends to go watch drag race or to see a drag show in person if I have time. But that is an ever-shrinking window. I don't need to mean to be all up in your business, but you know that's not sustainable, right? Like, you have to sleep at least. <laughs> you know, I've been getting two to, sorry, four to six hours of sleep for the last 10 years. So I've become adjusted to that not great sleep schedule. I actually am someone who I think has realized the importance of trying to do some self-care and also taking time off. But I'm in the middle of a competitive primary in one of the most competitive congressional districts. So I'm serving my community as a legislator and I'm not resigning, which would be the easier thing to do because it'd be really easy for me to say, I'm going to stop. But there are way too many fights happening at the legislature. Just yesterday, we had to kill a bill that was completely unnecessary that said that you could only fill out official state documents with a male or female gender marker. And I got up and I made a speech and I was actually able to convince one of my Republican colleagues to vote no on the bill. And we killed it because these are stupid bills that we're wasting our time on instead of talking about how we're going to work together to solve real problems, whether it's taking care of the LGBTQ community or all Arizonans, because we keep having all of these political fights instead of talking about the issues that need to really be addressed. That is a very long roundabout way of saying, no, I don't have time. But if you know anyone, please feel free to send them along. They're going to end up being like a coffee boy for a little bit <laughs> during the next couple months until the primary is over. You mentioned health, you know, self-care. And I'm just curious as to what does that look like for you, especially given, you know, your schedule? How do you take care of yourself? Right now, the main thing um, is I'm going to be, for the foreseeable future, given that we're in the legislative session, a lot less available. But I do take time in the evenings to spend time with friends. So my official and campaign calendars have to stop by 7.30, which I know sounds insane to people, but I'm a night owl. So whether that means curling up with a good book or watching some trashy TV or going and spending some time with a friend... I will always make time in the evenings to do something for myself. Um, It may only be an hour, but I I will get my hour in, even if it's at 10 o'clock at night. And I'm a big Trekkie, so I love Star Trek. I love everything related to Star Trek. So um, I've started rewatching Star Trek Voyager, which is my favorite series because it has a strong female lead. And of course, as a gay man, I'm drawn to a strong female lead. So... For me, self-care looks like at least one hour a day doing something that does not involve me having to answer the phone, talk to anybody about 
the election, talk to anyone about legislation. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but that one hour a day really helps make sure that like the next morning I'm able to get up, even though I'm a little tired because I usually slept fewer hours than I probably should have, but it keeps me going because again, I'm really driven by the work that I'm doing. And right now in the middle of a legislative session, that's been really tough for the LGBTQ community. I have too many fights to not be there and to let somebody else who doesn't have the experience or the opportunity to kill bad bills or hopefully pass good stuff. Speaking of bad bills, where are we right now in the don't say gay bill conversation? We know that, um, you know, Florida took the national headlines uh, in terms of, you know, introducing a bill like this, but there's one in Arizona as well. And you've been very prominent locally in fighting it. There was, and we killed it. I was really fired up about this because in 2019, I worked with a good friend of mine, a Republican named Kate Brophy McGee and a Republican named TJ Shope to repeal No Promo Homo, which for 28 years made it illegal for us to even acknowledge that the LGBTQ LGBTQ community existed in Arizona. So then this year, come to find out that not only are we going to have a bill get introduced, but that it's being heard in education that would have banned homosexuality. And the way that the bill was crafted was unconstitutional. So I approached the sponsor and I said, you know, this bill is not going to go all the way through. It's unconstitutional. The guise was to protect kids from pornographic materials that we needed to ban pornography in public schools. And I reminded the people who are my colleagues and said, it's already a crime in Arizona to show pornography to Arizona uh, minors. So what is the problem that you're trying to fix here? And they said, well, this isn't about gay things. This is just about banning pornography and explicit materials. So I took them to task during the committee hearing. And I said, in the way that this bill is drafted, anything that has to do with homosexuality would be banned. So Billie Jean King, known lesbian, famous tennis player, is now considered a sexually explicit thing that would have to be banned in public schools. Did you intend your bill to ban that? And the gentleman who was the sponsor said, I will not dignify that with a response. That is a straw man arguing and not going to get into that fight with you. And I'm like, so you're not even going to answer a basic question about your bill. Who did you talk to when you were crafting this legislation? And very proudly, he got up and said, I didn't talk to anyone. I'm elected so I can do what I think is best to protect kids. And the chairwoman of the committee actually called me out and said, Daniel, you're being catty. And I said, oh, of course the gay ban is being catty here. Because me simply asking, who did you work with on this legislation? How did you come up with this idea? Suddenly means that when I call out people's inability to work their bills, I'm a catty person. And it made me really upset because if I were a straight man, I would not get called caddy. We go to the next step, which is going to the House floor. And shockingly, the rules attorneys, the ones who tell us what's unconstitutional or not, said this bill is unconstitutional. You have to change it. So the bill sponsor, with his tail between his legs, had to come back and remove the word homosexuality. So it was still a stupid bill, but it at the very least did not pass the don't say gay portion. That was, I think, the biggest concern that I had. You mentioned your support system. And one of those things you like to do is maybe soak in some drag race, if you will. So I have seen over 85 of the RuPaul's Drag Race contestants 
live in the last 10 years. So yes, I love drag. I uh, joke that my drag name would be Shirley Big Assy because uh, I love the dame. <laughs> but I, I really enjoy drag shows because they're irreverent. They allow you to shut your brain off for a minute and watch some good entertainment and listen to good music and usually see really fun outfits that you wouldn't see out in the real world. What is your drag name again? I joke that it's Shirley Big Assy in honor of Dame Shirley Bassey. <laughs> I have tears in my eyes. I've never actually done drag. I, jo I joke that I'm too pretty for drag. It's mostly because I'm too hairy and I don't want to shave. Um, so I love drag. I think it's an incredible art form, but I think it's a, a fun escape because so much of the work that I do is so serious that having an hour where you get to listen to music and get to hang out with friends and watch someone do something really, really cool is a nice escape from, you know, having to defend your existence as an LGBTQ person every couple weeks at the legislature. So you're coupled on this episode with cornbread. Oh, I, that's awesome. I love cornbread. I'm so sad that she wasn't able to stay the whole season. Hopefully they'll bring her back. Why do you love cornbread? Because she was the best contestant this season. <laughs> that's why, because she was better at everything than most of the other contestants. Don't get me wrong. There were a lot of talented Queens, but I think, uh, the little that I got to see of cornbread left me wanting more. What was your favorite aspect of cornbread during her time on Drag Race? I think her sense of humor. And as a slightly bigger queen, I think it's always important that people realize that they can be versatile. Uh, similar to Eureka, I think you can have people who are of size who are able to show that they're able to do things just as well as any other queen. And that just because... You know, they're bigger doesn't mean that they have a bad fashion sense. It's just most of the time we don't get clothes that are big enough that are fun to wear. Okay, I'm sending out into the universe right now this conversation reaching RuPaul's ears and she inviting you on the show to be a judge. I'm sending that <laughs> energy into the universe right now. So I've been watching it since literally season one and that would like I, I would literally die. So don't please. I, I want to keep living. We don't want you to die because you're doing incredible work on our behalf. You're running for Congress, which means you're intent on continuing to do incredible work. And you are such a tremendous fighter for us that we can't have you going bye-bye just because <laughs> RuPaul wants you to come on <laughs> and be a judge. I would love to meet RuPaul and not touch her because I feel like she is not someone that is to be touched. She is to be admired. And you stand next to her and take a picture. But no, I... I'm a big fan of the show. There are issues over the years where, you know, they haven't always been the most caught up on things. And I'm like, neither have I. Like, I still have to be reminded on occasion not to say, hey, you guys, or not using people's preferred gender pronouns because it is all a learning experience. And I think one of the things that I'm always a fan of is every time someone makes a mistake, you don't assume worst intentions and you assume that it's a teachable moment because I'm still constantly learning. What a beautiful way to end this conversation. Representative Daniel Hernandez, comma. Call me Daniel. Call me Daniel, comma. What was your drag name in here? I have to get your drag name down. Shirley Big Assy Dame if you're nasty. Shirley Big Assy Dame if you're nasty. Oh, yeah. I am personally starting a campaign to get you somehow <laughs> either in drag or at least on the show as a judge. You're worthy. You deserve it. 
Well, thank you so much, Elsie. It was a pleasure actually getting a chance to talk to you. Next time we'll do it over wine in Tucson in, in Southern Arizona. That sounds like a wonderful, wonderful time. And thank you once again for stepping up. And honestly, on January 2011, when a lot of other people would have run to protect their own lives. Thank you for saving Congresswoman Gabrielle Gifford's life. Thank you for being an American hero. No, thank you so much. And look forward to hearing cornbread. (laughs) On the next episode of Life Out Loud, we're closing out season two the best way we know how, with a dance party. No lay down, get my weak game, play up few rounds. What I'm gonna do, better do now. But my mind start racing the you now. We've invited DJ and Grammy-winning remix master Tracy Young to talk about getting crowds to their feet, her remix collaborations, and her love for the community. The DJ lifestyle and the gay community and the following and the experience and all that, that was our happy place. That was where we just let it all go. And the music was a big part of that. And it was a safe place. It's a blessing. That dance floor was special and it is special and it shouldn't be taken for granted. This is one house party you don't want to miss. Hey, thanks so much for listening. And remember to hit subscribe if you haven't already. And please, please, please tell your friends, your family, your loved ones, your side pieces, your main pieces, anyone who you think could benefit from listening to these incredible stories from these remarkable people. And also, just take a moment to leave us a rating and review. That goes a long way to helping us get the word out. And more importantly, keep going. Life Out Loud with LG Granderson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by my friend Trevor Hastings. Same producer is Brenda Salinas Baker. Our amazing production team includes David Toledo, Vika Arison, and Carrie Ann Thomas. The executive producer of Life Out Loud is Liz Alessi. A big shout out to Lakia Brown, Joe Moore, Robert Zapata, Tony Morrison, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, and Stacia Dashisku. I'm LZ Granderson. This is that, that good, good. good.